Acts chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at verses 11 through 26. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who spoke who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That sends our reading of God's infallible word. May all who hear it find that their greatest needs have been met by their Lord Jesus Christ. Before we jump in today, I want you to take a moment and ask yourself a question. What would you say is your greatest need at this moment? Considering your life and everything that's going on, what is the most pressing issue right now? For some of you, you might answer finances. You know, if I only had a little bit more money, then I'd be able to pay off that debt and not have to worry of living month to month, paycheck to paycheck. For others of you, you might answer health. You might have some medical issue that just won't go away and has been holding you back from living life to the fullest. Or maybe your, your greatest need is relational. Perhaps you have a family member or, or a friend where 
where the relationship has become strained. And, and if you could just find peace between the two of you, then, then your life would be so much better. Let's face it, no matter, no matter who we are, we, we all have issues in our life. Problems that need resolving. And the good news is, is, that, is that the God whom we find in scriptures, he's a God who cares, right? He, he cares for the needs of his people. This is what we saw last week, is it not? When, when Jesus healed the, the man who was lame since birth. I'm sure that if you had asked that man what his greatest need was, he would have answered, I, I want to walk. I need healing in my legs. Jesus met the need of that poor beggar through his servants, Peter and John. Peter had, had commanded that man to, to rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, this man did more than just walk, did he not? But, but being filled with the joy of the Lord, he, he, he leapt like a child. Jesus saw the need of this man and he healed him completely. And yet this healing, it had a greater purpose than just meeting the need of this man. For it would become this catalyst for addressing an even greater need. A greater need among the Jewish people who were living in Jerusalem that day. You see, this healing, it caused a stir. It caused people to, to question. They were amazed. They were astounded at what had taken place. For, for this, this lame man, this beggar, he, he had spent his whole life at that gate, at that temple. Everybody knew who he, who he was. Everybody recognized him immediately. And yet they, they, they couldn't understand how such a thing was even possible. And so they crowded around him, amazed and astonished. And yet this was all a part of God's plan. His plan to meet the greatest need of the people of Jerusalem. For Peter would now address the crowds, beginning to explain the source of this man's healing. Look at, look at our first two verses. Look at verses 11 and 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Well, Peter didn't waste any time, did he? He, he addressed this crowd that was gathering around them. And the reason he did it is because he saw opportunity, right? The opportunity that God had brought his way. And so he began to proceed to bear witness to the risen Jesus Christ. And what does he tell them? What does he ask them? Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why are you so amazed at a man being healed? Did you not come here to pray? To whom are you praying to? Do you not realize that the God to whom you pray to is God? That he has power to heal the lame? 
You see, the, the reason this crowd formed was because these people ultimately lacked faith in their God. Yes, they were devout Jews, and, and yes, they were praying Jews. But what did those prayers mean? Because the one whom to, the, to whom they were praying is the all-powerful one. And yet when the miraculous happened, it set them into an utter state of bewilderment, of wonder and disbelief. I mean, why pray if you don't think God can cause a lame man to walk? And yet before we judge these people, we should ask ourselves if we are any different. I mean, we worship the same God as they did. We, we claim that he is the creator of the universe. And yet our, our, our scientific minds have this tendency to, to rationalize, rationalize away anything that is supernatural. Am I right? We, we try to find reasons other than God to explain such things. And that's because it's easier for us. It's easier to point to things that we can touch, to, to things that we can see with our eyes. It's easier to look to those things and to, to believe that, that a God who is spirit, a God whom we cannot touch, a God whom we cannot see could be the cause of such things. And this is exactly what this crowd was doing. They looked to Peter and John for an explanation. It, it must have been them. Something that they had done that made this man well. And yet Peter is now making it very, very clear that neither he nor John brought about this man's healing. It had nothing to do with, with their piety or their, their amazing abilities. Rather, this man's healing came about because the invisible God does such things. Well, Peter drove the point further home in verse 13 when he said this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You see, it is only by God's power that a lame man can be healed in such a manner. And yet, what does Peter say was the reason for this man's healing? In order that God may glorify his servant, this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I find it very interesting that Peter would use the word servant to describe Jesus. And this is really the first of six titles that, that we will see Peter use in this discourse. Six titles to describe this Jesus of Nazareth. And what we'll discover is, is that in each of these titles, we will have some sort of significant connection to the Old Testament scriptures. And this makes sense, being that those who were listening to Peter that day were devout Jews, right? Jews who had come to the temple to pray. These were, these were men who would have known their scriptures well, and so they would have picked up on these references that Peter was using immediately. The one being here, God's servant. Look at, look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, 
whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, Jesus is this servant of God who was prophesied throughout the book of Isaiah. We see songs about God's servant throughout Isaiah. And now God has glorified this man by performing signs and wonders in his name. And yet what else does Peter say about this servant of God? That this one who is now glorified this is, is the very one whom you have rejected. The one whom you handed over to Pilate. The one whom you renounced in his presence. You see, what Peter is doing here is he is beginning to demonstrate to these people the problem that they faced. He, he is showing them their greatest need. And he takes it a step further in verse 14 when he says this. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You see, not only did they deny the servant of God, but they, but they then replaced him with a murderer, with Barabbas. And look at the title that, that Peter now gives to Jesus. The title here is holy and righteous one. Again, this is, this is something that would have been significant to these Jews. It would have meant something to them. First, what, what does it mean to be holy? Well, to be holy is to be set apart. It is to be distinguished. It is that which is sacred. What about righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? We, we talked about this this morning in, in, in our Sunday school class. To, to, to be righteous is to be one who is, who is just in his ways. One who is upright in heart. Uh, a person who detests evil, a man who is innocent and without blemish. And when you look in the Old Testament, it, it is Yahweh who is referred to as both holy and righteous. He is often called the Holy One of Israel. Consider Hannah's prayer in, in 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. She says this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Or consider the prophet Isaiah again, who, who uses the word holy more than any other word to describe Yahweh. Look at, look at Isaiah 12, verse 6. Shout and, and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. You see, when it comes to this term holy, no one can really hold a candle when it when compared to the Lord Almighty. And yet in the Old Testament, we also see this term being used to describe the coming Messiah. Look at Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. We, we, we talked about this passage before, do we not? In Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. 
This is a psalm that refers to the messianic king. And in this psalm, the Messiah, what is he called? God's holy one. But what about the term righteous? How is that term used in the Old Testament? Again, we'll, we'll, we'll discover that it is God who is called the righteous one. Look at, look at Psalm 129, verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Or consider Daniel chapter 9, verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done And we have not obeyed his voice. You see, God, he he demonstrates his righteousness, not only in that he is purely good, but also in the fact that he doesn't allow those who are unrighteous to go unpunished. He exacts justice because he is righteous. And yet we once again see this term righteous also being used to describe our coming king, the Messiah who would rescue his people through his victorious justice. Consider Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, when when Peter calls this Jesus the holy and righteous one, what he is saying is that that Jesus is either God or or that he is the Messiah or or he is both. He, He is communicating that Jesus is pure, that he's spotless, that he is distinguished from all the rest, that he is just, that he is good, not allowing a spot of wickedness to sully who he is. And this would have been understood by these devout Jews who were there to pray at the temple that day. That this title, holy and righteous one, would would have at least had messianic overtones, if not divine overtones. And yet what is ironic is that these Jews traded in this holy and righteous one for a murderer. For someone who was unholy. For someone who had zero righteousness. For someone who was guilty because of his vile crimes. You see, Barabbas was released because these Jews had chosen him. And in his place, Jesus, this holy and righteous one, was punished. But what was the punishment? Look at at our next verse. Look at verse 15. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here we see our third title for our Lord. Jesus is the author of life. Again, this is something that Peter's audience would have understood. By calling Jesus the author of life, he is referencing the book of Genesis when God breathed 
life into Adam. Look at Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, where we see that God is the author of life. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. And so we see that the, the, the power of life and death are in the hands of God Almighty. And so this crowd, if they weren't certain before that, that Peter believed this Jesus to be God in human flesh, they're pretty certain now. By calling him the author of life, Peter is, is recognizing that this Jesus has, has an authority that belongs to, to, to one, that it belongs to only God. I mean, think about what this name means. If, if Jesus truly is the author of life, then he was there at the beginning. That before death even entered into our world, he was present, breathing life into man. And yet again, we see the irony in Peter's words, do we not? As he says that this author of life was killed. The author of life was killed, and he was killed by this crowd. These people had crucified the very man who happened to be the life-giving God. Again, Peter is showing to these people the great trouble that they had brought upon themselves. And yet, what else does Peter say? That death could not hold him. For God had raised this author of life from the dead. And both he and John were witnesses to this fact. But not only does Jesus have life within himself, but as was evident before all who were in that temple that day, Jesus had brought this same life to this man who had been lame from birth. Look at, look, look at verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Who was it that healed this man? It was Jesus. This man had faith in the name of Jesus. Again, this wasn't Peter's doing, nor was it John's. Rather, it was Jesus Christ who healed this man. It was faith in him and in him alone that made this man walk. And that's because Jesus is the servant of God. He is the holy and righteous one, the author of life. Now, now, I can imagine that just as, as the crowd on the day of Pentecost were, were cut to the heart, that these people also felt the biting words that Peter spoke when they realized the truth concerning what they had done. 
I, I mean, think about what Peter just said to them. That, that, that God's servant, this, the, this one who was spoken of, of by the prophet Isaiah, he had come to you and, and dwelt in your midst. This holy and righteous one of God who was supposed to be your savior king lived among you. And instead of embracing him, you had him murdered. In fact, so bitter was your hatred for him that, that you had Pilate release a true murderer instead. And all because you wanted to kill this Jesus. And what's more, P Peter had now revealed to this crowd that this one whom they crucified was also the author of life. That he is none other than God in human flesh. And this was proven by the fact that he had been raised from the dead and has now brought the same life-giving healing to this man who was lame since birth. And when you add this all up, what you see Peter communicating to this crowd is that God himself had come to his people in the form of a man, this Jesus of Nazareth, in order to rescue them. But instead of embracing him, they had him murdered. And now there was this enormous burden of guilt bearing down upon them. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, because he has now ascended to his heavenly throne, they now stood condemned. And their greatest need, their greatest need, was to find forgiveness. They, they needed the mercy of their king. Would they be able to find that mercy? Or would they remain under judgment? Let's find out. Look at, look at our next two verses. Look at verses 17 and 18. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here we see the fourth title that Peter gives to this Jesus. He is the Christ. He, he is the Messiah. This, this term Christ in the Greek is Christos, and, and it means the anointed one or the king. It, it's, and when it, when it came to the Jews, this, this Greek term Christos, it was usually in reference to the Messiah. That's how they would use this term, and that's how they would understand it. The future king that would come in order to rescue his people and to establish his eternal kingdom. And so if it wasn't plain to them by now that this Jesus is their Messiah, Peter is now making it abundantly clear by using the word Christos. He is the promised one, prophesied in the Old Testament, who would come to rescue the Jewish people, to bring about God's kingdom. He was their savior. But the question was, in what manner, what manner would Jesus save his people? Now, when we look at this verse, we, we, what we will discover is that there are two truths concerning Jesus' death that Peter is communicating. One, that those who crucified him had done so out of ignorance. And two, 
that God was not ignorant. Rather, the death of his servant was according to his will. So let's, let's consider these two truths in, in a little bit more detail. Now, 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 what did Peter mean when he said that they acted in ignorance? I mean, does this mean that they shouldn't be condemned for what they did? That, that deep down in their hearts they were truly innocent? That's not what Peter's saying. Rather, what he is communicating was that they were ignorant of God's plan of salvation. And that is why they did what they did. You see, for, for these Jews, they had a certain understanding of whom they thought the Messiah should be. Of how he should save them. I mean, they, they, they wanted him to be this warring king. This one who would raise up an army and free them from the Romans. And that's because the, the Jews at this time, they were fixated on becoming, once again, an autonomous nation. They, they, they were looking to restore that old kingdom that was promised under the old covenant. And so they were looking for a king like David. One, one who was fearless in battle and who could send thousands to flight. I mean, in their minds, this, this was the picture that they had envisioned for the Messiah. And so when Jesus came along, they missed it. I mean, consider Jesus' words as he was hanging from the cross. Look at, look at Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So this... This ignorance that the Jews had when it came to the Messiah, uh, when it came to how God would rescue them, it, it did not mean that their hands were clean. No. I mean, otherwise, why would Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Why would they need forgiveness if they were innocent? What, what it meant was that they were ignorant toward, towards God's plan of salvation. And so they had rejected the Messiah that God had sent to them because they were looking for someone else. And yet God is never ignorant, is he? In fact, everything that Jesus went through, he did so according to his Father's will. And this is attested to in the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, one just has to go to the book of Isaiah and the prophecies concerning God's servants to see this to be the case. And look at Isaiah 53, verse, verses 7 through 10. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Did you hear that? 
It, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had put him to grief. And so you can see that this execution of, of Jesus was not some arbitrary death, even though the people did this out of ignorance. For God had planned this in advance. And he did so because it was his will. He used the wicked hearts of men to bring about his own purposes. And that's because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was necessary. Necessary for the salvation that God would bring to his people. They, the, there needed to be an atonement for the sins of men. An atonement that would actually be effective. You see, the, the, the blood of animals, those bulls and those goats that were slaughtered, slaughtered in the very temple that, that Peter was now in, that blood just wouldn't do. The blood of animals, they, they don't have the power to truly atone for sins. They, they, they can't atone for anything. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, this holy and righteous one of God, can truly cover the sins of many. And so we see that this salvation was accomplished through both the ignorance of wicked men as well as through the perfect planning of God Almighty. And this, this, my friends, is good news. And it was good news for those Jews back then. For, for even though they were complicit in the murder of this Jesus, there was still time to repent. There was still time to find salvation. Look, look at verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so here we get this call for repentance. Peter was commanding this crowd that they should turn away from their sins, from their unbelief, and that they should turn towards Jesus. And this, my friends, was their greatest need. For they were a guilty people. They had blood on their hands. For they had refused to recognize God's servant, this holy and righteous one this author of life, this one who came to rescue them from their wicked ways, and so they killed him. And yet it was through his shed blood upon that cross where they crucified him that they could now find forgiveness, where their sins could be atoned for. Peter was commanding them to turn to this Jesus, to put all their trust in him. And that if they would do this, then their greatest need would be met. For all of their sins would be blotted out. But not only would their sins be blotted out, but Peter says that, that times of refreshing would come their way through this Jesus. That they would have, have relief within their consciences. That the weight that was upon their chest would be removed. That they would once again be able to breathe. 
And yet this time of refreshing is more than just a clean conscience, is it not? For, for, for it would also be the delight that comes to those who truly know Jesus Christ. To those who experience his goodness, his kindness. To those who sit underneath that throne of mercy. And this refreshing is made complete when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit to reside within them. Producing love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the only reason that the Holy Spirit could now come was because of where Jesus is now sitting. Because he has ascended to his throne. And that is where Christ, Christ would remain as he rules over his growing kingdom. And did you notice that well that Peter hints that, that Christ will one day return? That he will one day come back in order to restore all things? But until that day, the, these Jews would be given time to repent. They would be given time to find salvation in this Jesus who is their Christ. What Peter is basically saying to them, it, it's not too late. That, that, that even though you had crucified your Messiah, you can still find forgiveness in this Jesus. That you can, you can still be considered God's people. Look at, look at verses 22 through 24. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And so we now see a fifth title for our Lord. A prophet like Moses. Peter, Peter here is quoting the book of Deuteronomy and the promise that was given to Moses by Yahweh himself. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. I, I, I can think of no other person who fits the bill more than Jesus Christ. For he was raised up by God himself. And of his earthly heritage, he was a brother to these Jews. And the words that he spoke were the exact words that his father had given to him. I mean, consider Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, where this prophecy comes from. Listen to the words of God. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them, speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus is this prophet like Moses. There is no one else who comes even close. Bottom line is this. God will hold accountable every Israelite who does not listen to this prophet, this prophet whom he has raised up. In fact, Peter says that, that he will be destroyed from the people, that they will be cut off from Israel. For, for they are not true Israel if they refuse to listen to the prophet whom God has sent to them. 
But they refuse to listen to the teachings of this one who speaks the very words of God himself. But Peter has hope that they will not be cut off. In fact, by pointing them back to Moses, Peter was trying to encourage his listeners that God has not given up on the Jewish people. That there was still time to repent. Time to listen to this prophet like Moses. And he speaks this truth further in verse 25 when he says this, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And, and here we see the last title that Peter uses for Jesus. He is the offspring of Abraham. And what this refers to is the promise that God had given to Abraham concerning the blessing that would come about through his heir. Look, look at Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so here we see God speaking to Abraham after Abraham was faithful to God, willing even to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And yet the offspring through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed would not be Isaac. Rather, it would be none other than Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter spoke in our passage back in verse 25. Consider, consider what Peter was saying. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your forefathers. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant. Peter is no longer speaking of the, of the covenant that was made with Moses, but of the covenant that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No longer is he speaking of that conditional covenant where obedience to the law was paramount. Rather, he is speaking of an unconditional covenant where God is the one who fulfills his promises without requiring anything from his people. And this is crucial because what Peter is saying to this crowd, what he was communicating to these Jews is that they have been blessed because of their lineage, because they are descendants of Abraham. That God will not just cut them off, even though they have just murdered his Messiah. And so God has given to them this opportunity to repent. To listen to this prophet who is like Moses. And to enter into this new covenant in his name. Because of who they are as descendants of Abraham, God is being patient with them. But like Abraham, they now needed to become obedient to his voice, to the voice of his prophet. They must trust in this Jesus, because then and only then 
would they be blessed. And yet this blessing doesn't belong to them alone, does it? As this offspring of Abraham, what does it say? He shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Look at, look at our last verse. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so we have come full circle, have we not? Peter is once again using this title, servant. And we see that this servant has been sent to the Jews first in order to offer to them salvation. And that is because the blessings of the nations comes through Israel. That's why in the book of Romans, Paul, the apostle Paul proclaims this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so this crowd that Peter is now addressing, these, these Jews who had crucified their king, they have now been given the opportunity to change directions, to put their trust in this servant of God, Jesus Christ, to, to put their faith in this holy and righteous one in order that their sins might be blotted out, to put their hope in this author of life in order that they might experience times of refreshing to turn away from their sins and turn towards Jesus in order that they might experience his presence as he sends them his Holy Spirit. To repent when they hear the words of this prophet who is like Moses in order that they might remain among the children of God. And to believe in the promise that comes through this offspring of Abraham in order that they might receive the blessings of God upon their lives. The greatest need that these people had was Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest need that you have as well. For you too need your sins to be blotted out. You too need times of refreshing. You too need the blessings of God. And that can only come about if you repent and put your trust in that servant of God the Holy and Righteous One, the author of life, the prophet who is like Moses, this one who is the offspring of Abraham, your Messiah, Jesus Christ. Trust in him, and he will take care of your greatest need. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now as a, as a broken people, a people who have been cut to the heart and are in need of great, great forgiveness. Too often we, we, we don't even recognize our own sin. In, in our ignorance, we don't even realize that we have transgressed your laws. We need your forgiveness. We need your mercy. We need your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to repent. Help us to trust in him, in this Jesus of Nazareth, in this one who died for our sins and rose from the dead. 
and the servant of God, and this one who is holy and righteous, and this one who is the author of life, and this Messiah, this Christ, this prophet like Moses, this offspring of Abraham. Help us to trust in Jesus alone. We now look to him for the forgiveness that we need. We pray this in his mighty name.